I think every mother should go to rehab because I think we get so lost in doing things for our kids because we should that we lose that ability to balance. We lose that ability to honor ourselves and take care of ourselves. Welcome to Wild Peace, a place where parents of kids who struggle can come together for camaraderie, inspiration, and support. If a child in your life faces learning and attentional challenges, developmental differences, or mental health concerns, this is for you. I'm your host, Kendra Wild. Hey friends, I'm so glad you're here. This is the 12th episode of Wild Peace for Parents, and it's your final installment for season one. I'm taking the summer to put together a whole new batch of inspiring stories, which will come out for season two early this fall. I'm not dropping fillers in here, even though there's some pressure to just keep churning them out. And that's because I'm all about finding that space to breathe, and I hope you are too. If you have a great guest suggestion, send them my way through wildpeace.org. And if you haven't had a chance to listen to other Wild Peace episodes, summer is your chance. (laughs) It's been so gratifying to hear from you. Parents are telling me that hearing each other's stories helps them feel less alone. Our paths may be unique, but when it comes down to it, we have so much in common. One mom said each episode brings nuggets of hope, wisdom, and connection. And another said this podcast is well done, informative, therapeutic even. If you're loving it, would you please leave a review? A quick tap on those five stars and a positive comment will let us know we're on the right track and make it easier for others to find us. Since this show is for you, I'd love to know what you care about. Okay, on with the show. My guest today is as authentic and real as they come, and I'm so super grateful that she's brave enough to share her story to help others. When Liesl Pike Muldow graduated from business school, she had plans to change the world, but she had no idea how her parenting experience would shape that plan. Liesl and her husband Charles have four kids, one who has acute special health care needs. The stress of caregiving nearly brought Liesl to her knees. Her path of self-discovery, along with her other daughter's alarming struggles with anxiety, spurred her to do something to make a difference. Liesl co-founded a nonprofit called Safe Space to empower young people to change the conversation around mental health issues. They start with the question, what would happen if we told the truth about our lives? To give you a sense of how these students are opening up to support their peers, here's a clip from one of the videos they put together called You are not alone. I'm hoping that everyone who's watching right now, including you guys, that just to like really believe in yourself and remember that you have more potential inside you than you really think you have. Because from me being depressed and thinking that I have no worth to coming here and believing that I have a chance at life, I could do something big, I think Everyone should know that. In this refreshingly transparent conversation, Liesl and I talk about crushing stigma, a new approach to supporting emotional well-being, and how caring for yourself as a parent can make the biggest impact. So here you are. Meet the amazing Liesl Muldow. Hi, Liesl. I'm so excited to have you here today. 
Thanks, Kendra. I'm excited to be here. So I was thinking maybe you could just start out by giving us a kind of a brief overview about yourself and your family, and then we'll dig into safe space and your whole parenting journey. And we'll squeeze that all into one podcast. (laughs) Perfect. It can be consolidated. (laughs) Yeah. So I have four kids. We're living in California. And for somebody who probably wasn't the ideal mother, being a very hardworking, self-centered person, having four kids has certainly changed my life. And parenting is not a science. So it is something that I've learned through hard knocks how to at least do the best I can. Maybe we could start by talking about safe space and you could tell us what that is and why you started it. Yeah. Okay. Well, safe space is a youth mental health youth engagement center. And essentially in a nutshell, our mission is to enable and empower young people to advocate for mental health support for themselves and their peers. And it's a grassroots, youth-driven organization and really started when my daughter, one of my daughters has always had pretty severe anxiety growing up, you know, starting from second grade. And she had an event senior year, a suicidal ideation, and went to the Stanford lockdown unit because there were no pediatric facilities. And then after she was let out, got put on hold for a number of different programs. There was no follow-up. And I was clueless. I didn't know what to do. At this time, we were just thinking about starting Safe Space because I've always been an advocate of trying to help young people learn how to cope just because I did not learn tools. I had severe anorexia when I was 15, moving to a new place. And I just remember, you know, my parents didn't know what to do. So we just didn't talk about it. So I just kind of, what I learned was just to power ahead, you know, ignore it. And then that's all I did. And I, so I kind of did that my whole life, just power through, power through, achieve to cover up kind of sense of lack of worth. And so that was kind of the reason why I got started on safe space was really looking at how do we help kids cope and learn tools at an early age that they could use their entire life because I never had those tools growing up and I had subsequent issues that falling apart at 42 um, was not in my plan, but that's what happened. We can talk about that later. So here I am starting this mental health organization and my daughter, you know, has this issue and I didn't know what to do. I was terrified. I had no idea what to do, how to help her. It took me forever to figure out what resources were available. I finally got her into a day program. And then a week after insurance called and said, oh, no, your daughter's going to have to leave that program because she didn't actually try to kill herself. She just threatened to. And we just thought, oh, my God, the services, the crisis-oriented services are not helping our kids. And so let's back up and let's figure out where the kids are. So at Safe Space, you know, we know 70% of kids when they're first having problems will talk to a peer. So we thought, okay, how do we educate the young people and not just teach them mental health? And I always want to try to stay away from that word, but, you know, not teach them about anxiety and depression, but teach them coping skills, empathy, and 
you know, really develop other skills like compassionate listening and things like that so that they can help each other before it gets to be a crisis and then you're just lost in the system. So how does this program look? How do you make a youth-driven program? How did you start it? What does it look like? A lot of fits and starts. We were very idealistic at first, and I started it with two other moms from the Bay Area here, and one who had lost her daughter to suicide. So we were very motivated to come up with a different model. We looked all over the world, really, for a system that actually was what I call a complete continuum of of care, from the severe hospitalization down to partial hospitalization, down to outpatient therapy, and then the more traditional therapy session once a week. The one thing that we really wanted to add to was the youth outreach. There's a program in Australia called Headspace that was funded by the government, which is why they were able to be so prolific And they were just that type of a place. They didn't have inpatient, but their clinics, they started with 30 clinics, expanded to 100. And their main core kind of key success factor was that they were youth-driven. They talked to the youth to figure out what they needed and how, you know, what kind of services would work for them. And so we thought, okay, that's going to be our model for youth engagement. But we also really believe that a complete continuum of care is important. And we wanted to build it ourselves at first, but none of us had $100 million lying around. So we decided to create a virtual continuum of care. And we've partnered with two other fabulous child psychology groups, one that runs pediatric psychiatric hospitals and one that has local Bay Area clinics that just serve 12 to 26 aged kids, often younger, but that's kind of the age group. And they subsequently merged. So we have a partnership with them. And while we don't have direct ownership, we share, we support what they do. We support the kids that have gone through therapy and want to get into youth engagement. And they provide therapy services for some of the kids. It's a seamless care cycle, which is great. And your question was, well, how do you start this? Well, we had no idea, but we really loved what Australia was doing. We were driven by that statistic that kids talk to kids first, no matter how much money you put into programs or services or counselors at school, kids will talk to their peers. The other one being that the programs for the youth were all their national programs or their very intellectual, you know, research oriented programs. There were no programs that were kind of driven by the kids and really formed with their needs and interests in mind. And there were none that really engaged the kids in developing these solutions. And so with that as kind of our hope, we started with about 16 kids in four different schools and really went through a pretty, an initial kind of breakdown of what really worked for them and what was working in their schools, what was working in their communities, what was not. You know, it started off, at first they were a little bit wary, kind of like, really? Is this, are you just joking? But then we met with school administrators as well with them and 
really started creating solutions that were working for the kids in their schools. One school put together a dial down room, you know, just kind of a quiet room where kids could go hang out. Another school has done a lot of teen panels and working with athletes and having a safe space presentation info thing at football games and basketball games. You're really getting the athletes involved as, you know, just kind of trying to bring mental health out of the closet. And another project that a group of our kids have done are a series of videos that are kind of like mini TED Talks about not exactly about anxiety or depression, but once oriented more towards the expression of that. So you're not alone and how to help a friend. They've been really nationally received. We're working with a Lady Gaga Foundation on a couple videos because she loved hearing what our kids were saying. And this summer we're working on more about the families because we realized the kids were feeling empowered. They're ambassadors, their schools, and they really feel like they're making a difference. But one thing that's held them back is how do you manage within your own family? How do you kind of break the divide, the generational divide between a more open youth community and their peers and parents who historically, and I get this, I mean, this is what my parents were like too. And it wasn't their fault. It was just that generation, any generation over 30 or 40, we never talked about mental health care. If you have mental health issues, you know, we don't talk about it. We keep it in the family. We stay quiet. It's a sign of weakness. And so that's kind of the next set of issues that the kids want to really focus on and bring to life is reducing stigma among their parents and adults. That's so interesting. Do you think the kids feel any stigma themselves about participating? It doesn't sound like you've had a hard time recruiting kids to participate. Yeah, it's, you know, and that was kind of a surprise for me because I am of that generation that grew up with parents who said, don't talk, you know, don't ask, don't tell, whatever. And the other thing too is within schools and in the therapy world, because of all sorts of HIPAA requirements and privacy, it's a hush-hush thing anyway, because you're not supposed to share information and, and all of that. And I think while that's well-intended privacy, it has an adverse effect in the sense that it does create this code of silence around issues that have been shown to be incredibly alleviated by sharing it with someone else, by joining a support group, by airing your issues. For the young people these days, I think there's so many things that have just, you know, the world has changed for sure. And especially with the internet, everything is a lot more wide open. You know, some would argue that that's a detriment, but they also have exposure to other really productive support tools. The kids weren't shy at all. The parents have been very protective and shy. So we're dealing with that right now. We have a few families that volunteered to be recorded for a short five minute video. And one family pulled out, they just weren't comfortable. And that's totally fine. You know, not everybody can jump on to being straightforward about all this and that's okay. But the ones that do are really helping to model what it looks like for others. And that's what these kids and these families that we're working with this summer are doing. And I bet being part of this movement for the kids is therapy in itself. 
Right, right. Because that's, you know, if you get back to one of the most successful recovery programs, such as, say, a 12 step program or AA, part of maintaining, and again, it's the concept that you're never cured, but you develop tools and skills to manage your symptoms. And so you lead productive lives. And one of those tools is working with other people and giving back. That helps people in those programs stay on their path and just stay real instead of, oh, I'm cured, I should be fine, but the mental health condition still persists or whatever. So we tell the kids it's kind of like physical fitness. Even if you're in really good shape now, if you don't do anything about it, you'll get flabby. (laughs) Yeah. Of course, for some of us older ones, it happens a lot faster. So, you know, we kind of say mental, well, emotional well-being is kind of like a muscle. You've got to work at it. And there's so many different tools out to help, you know, meditation, mindfulness, all these types of things. But what the kids and what some of these really successful support programs have realized is that support fellowship groups or support having meaningful relationships with other people is as helpful as any antidepressant or anything like that. Because mental health issues are really, it's a disease of isolation. And, you know, the disease wants you to isolate so it can kind of rule your life. And so defying that and actually reaching out to others, helping others, really combats some of the symptoms. I really love how you kind of nail the issue of stigma and sort of the social media pretend perfection when you pose the question on your site, what would happen if we told the truth about our lives? And that's just so freeing to say what would happen. Yes, yes. And especially, you know, it's interesting because for teenagers, to your point, social media has a downside and it has potential to really help people find other people like them in a good way. And at Safe Space, we formed a partnership with a website called Seven Cups of Tea, which is the leading compassionate listening service. So it's not online therapy or anything like that, but it is text-based support. And they started just by providing empathetic listening to members. And they now have over 280,000 people who first joined the site as members, but are now graduated to be listeners. And so they have this incredibly robust database of people. So on our website, kids can go on to our safe space support line and they can text, they could identify somebody who has had anorexia and anxiety and is Indian. And there's a whole host of people who they can then text to and say, I'm having these issues. I'm 15. I don't know what. So it's fantastic in the sense that the online world provides anonymity for them. And it also provides immediacy because as we've done our studies, you know, kids are awake from 10 to four in the morning. That's kind of when they wake up and they're panicked. That's when sometimes they experience the most isolating, crippling symptoms. So to have an online support tool is really helpful. And it does give them something to do other than going on Instagram and seeing how popular everybody else appears to be. Yeah. I love that idea that, that that exists. That's so cool. Harnessing technology for good. Yeah. Yeah. So that's just another program that we've done. Yeah. You guys are doing so many good things. (laughs) I was just wondering, what are the kids 
who've participated, what are they saying about how it's impacted them? Like, what kind of lessons do you think they're taking out into the world once they get out of high school? Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, we live here in Silicon Valley and we've got Suicide High School right down the road here in Palo Alto. You know, the, the kids, I think, I'm sure this is everywhere, but they're so programmed to, I've got to get good grades. I've got to have a good internship. I've got to have good resume. A lot of the kids do minutes here for that, or what's the least amount of work I can do to have something on my college application is, I mean, that's kind of what we force them into. But the kids who have started with us, we have meetings twice a week, planning activities, they're hosting team panels. What the kids have said is that it's been the most meaningful engagement activity that they've had in their very, very long, under 18 years. But because they have a part in, they're calling the shots to a degree, we're supporting them. But this is the first time they're actually, you know, it's not their parents telling them you should do this. It's not their teacher or their coach or, you know, anything like that. They're coming up with the initiatives. They're taking the time to do it. So these kids spend like six to eight hours a week, if not more, working on safe space type activities. And we've had to write college recommendations for many of them because they say that this is one of the most, this is what helped get them through high school and was kind of a source. And, you know, at first you wouldn't think that kind of a, a small group working on mental health issues would be satisfying, but I think it's the fact that they've become really good friends, all of these kids, and there's 85 now, and we used to do, you know, school by school type of activities, but the kids said, no, 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 we don't want to do that because now, you know, you give them a little inch, they take a mile. So instead of organizing the kids by schools, they decided to organize in different cross-community groups. So there's a content group that's mixed up with kids from middle school, high school, from kids, you know, at different schools, and they work on what kind of content they would on, put on a website or the Instagram page or Facebook in the videos. And there's the community group that, again, has a smattering of kids from all over. And they work on outreach initiatives, speaking in libraries, halftime at basketball games. They organized a speak up day at, at the local park type of thing. And then there's a community group and they work within the community to kind of spread the idea about safe space and get different partners together, such as we have the head of police is on, they formed this, what's called an adult alliance board. And essentially the kids nominated these adults within the community that they felt would be really supportive advisors in terms of, we want to do these types of things. How do we reach different people within the community? So we've got people from the local government. We just met with Jackie Spear, our Congresswoman, Officer Dave, who is the head of police. And he brings a whole nother perspective. He's like, yeah, I always see it in the crisis mode. And he said, thank God you guys are doing something, you know, to help kids before it gets to be a crisis. This preventative aspect is fascinating, I think. Right, right. Yeah. Something that's kind of come out of this adult alliance group, which kind of ties into a little bit about what you're doing, trying to help parents support themselves. We read about the study about this group that provided post-intensive care support by having young people nominate three adults that could be their kind of personal support team. So other than their parent. 
and this idea that kids need adult mentorship support, just somebody to have fun with that isn't their parents has been so effective in terms of ensuring that a child stays on their recovery path. And it's also a huge benefit for parents because I know when Catherine, my daughter came back from the hospital, it's frightening because you're like, okay, am I doing the right thing? How close should I be? Should I, should I sleep with her? Should I not? You know, and it kind of creates this relationship where, you know, you want to give them space, but how much space do you want to give them? And they want space, but then they want support. And it's just too much pressure, I think, on parents. Yeah. I mean, it's pressure on the kids, but it's pressure on the parents. And I think we get lost and feel incredibly helpless. And so the idea that there are other adults or other people who your child has nominated as a support group and helps parents as well. And it takes the burden of making sure they're okay off of them, you know, even just for a bit. I love that because it's like the kids showed that they really do want to have a village and you facilitated it, but they figured out how to create that for themselves. Right. Right. And that's because they do talk to their peers. So they've got that going, you know, having mentors that they meet with regularly and all of that, that just, it really helps. That's maybe a good segue into talking about your own personal journey and the kind of stress that parents shoulder, because, you know, what you're describing in your community is consistent with so many stories I've heard from parents from different parts of, at least in the U.S., that this continuum of care is not so obvious. It's really hard to navigate. And our system is sort of focused on managing the crisis and not on the prevention, not on helping parents themselves function. So I'd love to talk about your personal journey a little bit more. And because you and I are both really interested in compassion fatigue and secondary traumatic stress. <laughs> yes, yes. You know, real briefly, I've had a wonderful life and everything was very simple. I mean, things just kind of worked out. I don't know. It just happens. And so, you know, I met my husband in business school. All was great. And we had our first daughter, Catherine, and that was quite a shock because again, parenting is the ultimate act of selflessness. And at that time I wasn't really ready to be selfless. And so it was kind of uh, a little overwhelming, but you know, we, we got through because it was just one and, you know, I was able to work part-time and kind of balance things without the wheels falling off. But what really kind of changed my whole life was when our second daughter was born, she was a C-section and they took her up to the NICU because she was having breathing problems. And over the next six months, it was kind of a step down, you know, oh, she well, she's got some problems with her lungs. Oh, she has some problems with her heart. Oh, she can't hear. Oh, you know, she's got a tethered spine. You know, all of this kind of bad news coming and nobody knew really what the issue was. And she had been fine on all of the pre-screenings and all of that. So my life completely changed with our dear Madeline. And, you know, it was traumatic, I'm sure, for my two-year-old. In fact, we've been just starting to talk about this, how the trauma really affected her. Gosh, we were on first-name basis with all of our local paramedics. Madeline would always crash, like on Saturday night, we'd have to call the ambulance, and you go to the ER, and you know that's when all the drunk 
college students. And it was really terrifying. And we didn't know what was going on. We subsequently found out a year later that it was a genetic issue with the sixth chromosome, which, you know, they don't even test for that because typically anything wrong with one through eight of the chromosomes just means you're not going to survive. So, so she's an incredibly rare case. But, you know, within two months, she was on a ventilator and had a tracheostomy and had a gastro tube, a tummy tube. She had a colostomy. You know, it was just all of these things happening to this precious little baby girl. So that was traumatic. But I think, you know, because getting back to everything I didn't learn when I was 15, you know, I did what I've learned my whole life, which is essentially power through. And this was the era of Supermom or at least self-imposed supermom. I worked myself into a tither. I don't know what that means, but, you know, just trying to balance, trying to have a normal life at home, but trying to also, you know, support my daughter in the hospital and be this, all of a sudden I was this disabled child parent. And it was especially hard because we lived in this really fun, close neighborhood. And I think four or five of us were having second kids the same time. And all of their babies were normal and fine. And, you know, ours just wasn't. And that was really hard. And I think the other hard thing too is I love my husband dearly, but he doesn't cope well with disabledness. Very, I don't know how to describe it, but it just, he didn't really feel a connection as much with her as he had with the first one, because I think men really, you know, they like the feedback and, and all of that. And he really kind of withdrew into work. And I, of course, was like, oh, of course, you know, go take that new job. You know, I've got this, I can do this, I'll be fine. And I really did us both a disservice because, you know, we kind of went our separate ways and they're kind of created this big divide, which, you know, for the first few years was fine. But after about the fourth year or so, it became incredibly lonely. And I decided that Chardonnay would be my best friend instead of my husband. <laughs> that kind of led me down a slippery slope of needing it every day. And that's how I could cope. That soon became my coping mechanism, which isn't really, it, <laughs> it's not really a productive coping mechanism. <laughs> Such to the point that, you know, finally, I really broke. I just, I don't know if it was a breakdown or I couldn't do it anymore. I couldn't power through anymore. I couldn't juggle everything. And hands up, I just said, I'm done. I'm done. And I went to rehab at Betty Ford, which, and I think I said this in my talk, but, you know, I think every mother should go to rehab because I think we get so lost in doing things for our kids because we should, that we lose that ability to balance. We lose that ability to honor ourselves and take care of ourselves. I mean, the whole concept that you have to put your oxygen mask on before, you know, your child's, I mean, what mother would ever do that? But, you know, I really had to learn how to cope and yeah, and how to take care of myself in addition to not only my healthy daughter, but also my disabled daughter. And of course, being the numbnuts that I am, you know, we had two more children after Madeline because of course I thought having another child would fix me. So, you know, if that doesn't tell you how delusional I was, but it took a long time to be able to forgive myself and to realize I really needed to change. I needed to take time for myself and I needed to ask for others to help. And so it really began this process. And this is, again, kind of why I started 
safe space because I always think, you know, if I had learned some of this when I was 15, when I was really struggling and the only thing I, I knew was to power through, if I had learned that at 15, maybe I, I would have kind of recognized the danger signals earlier or gotten help earlier. I don't know. You know, you can't go back. I don't regret my past, but, you know, so now I have a fantastic fellowship and it's helped me. And then part of my program is giving back to others. And I'm not very shy about sharing my experiences because I don't know, I guess I'm not very anonymous, but you know, I I really feel what I've learned is that other people's stories, it just helps bind us together. And somebody has probably already gone through what I'm going through now. And I want to know how do they do it? But I'll never know if, you know, we're all so secret and silent and, uh, you know, just, we put up our Facebook page and that's it. We put the good stuff, but we don't put the, you know, I had a really fat Thursday and I just, you know, I really think I, I suck. So could you guys please tell me, you know, we don't do that. We just talk about how wonderful our kids are and, and all of that. And, you know, that's natural. I get it. But I think for those of us who have really struggled to speak up will help so many others learn to get help before it becomes crisis situation. Yeah. I can only imagine just the process that you went through of kind of becoming self-aware and learning how to take care of yourself. And maybe for the parents who are listening, who are at the beginning or in the thick of it right now, you could share what techniques you've have helped you or what mental shifts have helped you or what's in your program. I know everyone's self-care techniques and toolkit is personal, but it's always so interesting to know what works for you. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, for me specifically with my issue, I go to AA meetings a lot and it's really helpful. I mean, again, I think everybody should go to 12 step meetings because they really promote acceptance and helping others. But I think specifically what helped me, I was so angry at my husband for so long for not supporting me, for not, you know, not loving our daughter. And I kind of felt abandoned to kind of suffer through everything and take care of everything and be the one, you know, responsible for everything. That really poisoned me. I really learned that my anger towards him was really just hurting me. And there's this concept that we talk about acceptance without approval. You know, I had to learn to accept that he is wonderful for me 80%. And you know what? 80%, it's fine if I let it be fine. My expectations have always caused disappointments for me, my expectations of others, instead of, you know, really focusing on how do I live my life. For so long, I was you know, trying to direct his life and utterly failing. But I just kept thinking, you should, you should love our daughter. You should want to help me. And I wasted so many years just being so mad that he wouldn't. This concept of, you know, acceptance and forgiveness, you know, all kind of stems from humility. It's amazing. I found my husband was much nicer to me after I started to be much nicer to him. And so that's, I don't rely on him for everything, but you know, we're still married. We just had 25 years and we have a really good relationship. There's some things that I don't do that he wishes. I'm sure he doesn't want a recovering alcoholic wife, but you know, there you go. And then I guess the other thing, you know, friendships, 
reaching out to other friends. I don't have half as many friends as I used to because I just, I can't just do the, we have this joke about gala girls, you know, the ladies who lunch, you know, the ones who always actually take a shower every day and put on makeup and stuff. My friends joke around with me because if I get a bra on, I'm lucky. But those are the kind of friends I feel open and honest and transparent with. And they are energy givers. They're not energy suckers. Yeah. And I had to really kind of carefully extricate myself from the energy suckers because I was spending, my mom always had a saying, you know, those that mind don't matter and those that matter don't mind. So, you know, the friends who were judging me because I didn't, whatever, you know, they just don't matter. But my dear friends, they could care less, you know, what I wear or if I'm late. So it really was putting my priorities more on what adds joy to my life versus what should I be doing or what, you know, and that's, it was hard as a young parent. I know the kids are young and you, you feel all this, Oh my gosh, I should do Jimboree and, and they're doing that class and they're doing, you know, you feel all this pressure, but I think turning 50 kind of helped just like, eh, I don't have to try so hard anymore. I mean, it's not that, you know, I, I actually lost the weight I wanted to lose and things are much better, but I stopped caring and I started taking care of myself for myself, not, for others' opinions. And that's something that that supportive self is something I think that's so helpful. And that really translates to the kids, kids who are struggling. The best thing a parent can do for their child is to lead a healthy life. You can't change your child. You can't do everything for your child, but you can model behavior. That is such a huge lesson, and I don't know why it takes so long to really internalize that, but it just goes back to this idea that so much of this is internal work, right? In your marriage, in your acceptance of your child, it's really about getting through that grief, drawing those boundaries, and taking care of yourself, and then it affects everyone around you. Yeah, it really does, and and the trick is to find you know, you have to kind of go through an inventory process. What really brings me joy? What am I just doing to do it? And that really rubs off. I mean, I know my daughter, you know, when my husband and I go do something, she's always, oh, that's so cute. I just love seeing that. We're trying to break that old paradigm where you must do everything for your kids. You know, that's a good mom. That's a good, no, you know, yes, you must be there for them always but you must also take care of yourself and that's complicated, but it's not the super mom. It's kind of the guru mom, you know, it's being present with them when you're with them doing the things that you love, you know, that they see, Oh, okay. I'm worthy of that too. I can do that. If she can do that. Yeah. I love that. Before we wrap up, I just have a few questions. One is, do you have any advice for parents who are in the thick of it? or who are just at the beginning and sort of in that overwhelm mode? Yeah. Reach out to friends, get a couple friends and ask them people. It's so hard to ask for support, but people love to be asked and people want to be of help. I think for me kind of in that the whole throes of early parenting or just parenting a child that has had such difficulties, you know, I kept saying, I'm fine. I'm fine. And I really pushed away a lot of people, but I think saying, yes, I could use help. I could, you know, let's go for a walk or can we meet every Tuesday or can you be my person that I could call at two in the morning when I'm crying? 
And those relationships, those friends that helped me get through, you know, I wish I'd done it better. I wish I'd done more of that. And I didn't. And I, I might have, in fact, it was a friend who finally told me, Lisa, you are cracking up. You need help. And it was hard for her to say that because I put on such a good facade. But she, you know, she's been my best friend since growing up. She's like, you are different. You are not right. You need to get help. And at first I was like, oh, I am fine. But, you know, it's it's those kind of relationships that help carry us through. And just, you know, the whole idea that we are only our kids you know, shepherds, we are not their higher power. We are not their everything anymore. You know, we were when they were toddlers in nursing or whatever, but, you know, this age, this teenage age, it's transitioning to more of a coaching role. It's letting them fail. It's letting them make mistakes. That's hard too, because your neighbor's kid's going to Harvard and yours just got a C in econ. You know, it's like, oh, But that may not be their thing. So, you know, letting them go through things instead of protecting them is something I wish I'd done more of. And I still struggle with that. It still breaks my heart. My son didn't get on the all-star team he wanted to get on. And I was devastated for two days. But, you know, I I didn't wear it on my sleeve. I just kind of said, well, this is what we do. We fall down seven times, get up eight. You know, I, I don't know. But really talking, talking to people who you really care about. Meaningful relationships get us through. Yeah. Is there anything else you want to share before we say goodbye? I'll make sure to put all the resources you've mentioned and the Safe Space website up on the Wild Peace website. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm always a resource. I've talked to parents all over who are struggling with how do they help their child? What do I do? You know, I'm happy to talk to anybody. And, and I'll send you a number of different articles, you know, one on that youth selected adult support initiative, which I think is definitely something. And then also the study that shows that the best thing a parent of a child with mental health crisis, the best thing a parent could do for that kid is take care of yourself. And it's a medical study. So if they say it, then it must be true. Yeah. I'm going to put it up there on the site in big, bold font. (laughs) Yes. Exactly. I have a prescription to take care of myself. (laughs) Yeah, everybody does. I hope they, everyone takes that to heart because hearing from you is so amazing and inspiring. And just the fact that you have this experience is so impactful and I'm glad you're sharing it. It's such a gift. Yeah. Well, I, I really appreciate what you're doing because parents need to know they're not alone. Yeah. I think the one thing we do a disservice to ourselves by keeping our mouths quiet because there's a huge world of support out there. Yeah. So everybody reach out and thank you so much, Liesl. Yeah, you too. Thanks so much, Kendra. You've been listening to Wild Peace, a podcast created to bolster parents of kids who are struggling with mental health, learning issues, developmental differences, and more. If you'd like to suggest a guest or share your story, we would love to hear from you. Go to wildpeace.org, that's W-I-L-D-P-E-A-C-E dot org, to leave suggestions, see show notes from this episode, and explore more resources. You can also leave a message at 617-433-8582. Since this is a podcast, we especially love hearing your voice. And if you enjoy what you're hearing, please take a minute to rate us on Apple Podcasts. 
Just scroll down to those five purple stars and click. Your positive reviews will ensure that more parents who could use some Wild Peace can find us. This show is a production of Wild Peace for Parents, a nonprofit dedicated to helping parents find calm and build resilience. Because child well-being starts with parent well-being.